0: This is the statement by this organization. So while you're listening to this podcast and you're thinking, I don't know if people are normalizing violence, Vanessa, there it is. You have no other way to be seen than to brandish an AR-15 and blow people away. If that is not the normalization of violence and aggression, I don't know what is. Welcome to the Vanessa Landino podcast. I'm your host, Vanessa Landino. Well, if I'm being honest, we're still reeling here in Nashville from the horrifying events of last week, and the shockwaves are very strong when you're this close to the epicenter of an event. You know, Nashville is kind of a big city, small town. That's one of its nicknames. And so we all know someone personally who was connected to Covenant School. We know people who know the victims. So it's been a tough week. My fellow therapists and I have been taking good care of one another, and when we get together, we practice self-care. We don't spend a lot of time talking about it. We talk about other things. We allow ourselves to laugh. We're trying to balance out the heaviness so we can get back to work, but I know some of you have been wondering because you've been asking me how I'm doing, and I'm doing okay. I have my own therapist, and I'm taking care of myself, and I did what people do when they see their own therapist. I sort of... Dealt with my own emotions all week. And then once I got to therapy, as soon as that door shut, I just bawled. I cried my eyes out and cried for a lot of reasons, some of which I'm going to talk about in today's podcast. But there was a lot of anger. And I know a lot of you were feeling that way too. And then we got to work on some other issues, things that had been on my mind, things that I've been working on in myself. And so I want to say to those of you, particularly in the Nashville area, If you're listening to this podcast and you have a therapy session and you feel sort of compelled or pressured to talk about the event that happened at Covenant School, you don't have to. Let it be important to you if you feel that it's important to you. But if there are other pressing things in your life, take care of yourself. We don't score points by sort of jumping on board with the media story. And I know that this is a very personal event to a lot of people, but for some people, this is a very distant event. It doesn't really affect them directly. And I know some of you are feeling guilt, like maybe it should, maybe I should be more invested in this, or maybe I should care more. And what I want to say to you is this. The world needs an army of well-adjusted, mentally sound, emotionally aware, rationally thinking people. And we need this army of sane people, okay, reasonable, emotionally aware people to stabilize our homes, our schools, and our communities. So please keep doing your work. Talk about your issues. You are not selfish. You are not calloused if you're doing this. You are being a responsible citizen and frankly, a decent human being. So we don't have to feign concern or consumption with this event. It is a huge event. Certainly in the lives of the victims who have to carry on with their lives after the school shooting. But for the rest of us, let it affect you. Let it pass through you. But keep processing your issues. Keep doing the work. There's really no reason for guilt or shame if we're doing that. So I want to say something about this shooting and the psychology of the shooter. Of course, I don't know Audrey Hale at all. But I want to talk about violence in general. Okay, and a trend that I've been watching here for a while, certainly not only in Nashville, but in the world at large, definitely in the United States. You know, the Metro Nashville Police Department and the FBI have not yet released her manifesto, but the word is that they're going to. And when they do, it's going to provide a lot of insight and answers into her inner psychology and what drove her to do this terrible act. But I want to say a little bit about the talk going around social media. It's not just in social media. It's in the news media as well. And there's a lot of talk from all the armchair therapists out there. And I'm hearing this from licensed therapists as well. That it must have been trauma. If she didn't have trauma. If she didn't have childhood trauma. If she didn't have adult trauma. If the trauma had been addressed or even healed, this never would have happened. Friends, it's all I can do sometimes to just take a breath. Trauma is not the reason this happened, okay? First of all, we don't know if and when she experienced trauma because I'm not her therapist and neither are you unless you're listening and you are her therapist. And if you are, you're still bound by confidentiality even though she's gone. So we will not know her childhood story unless people come forward and tell us that, but there's no way to know her history. So we could assume there's trauma, Now, why would we assume that? Because she committed this act? Not necessarily. I would assume there's trauma because she was a living human being. And most people, by the numbers, at some point in their life, experience trauma of some kind or another. Okay? Most of us, you listening, have have had experiences with trauma in our lives. Trauma is sadly common. But violence isn't. Think about this. Most people do not commit acts of violence. Most people who endure trauma never become violent. So we have to ask ourselves what makes some of us traumatized and not violent, and what enables some of us who were traumatized to become violent. And that's what we're going to look at today. But before we dive in, I want to say this first trauma is not the reason people become violent. The root of violence is not trauma. Many people are traumatized. The root of violence is aggression. Okay, let's define things. Okay, let's start with definitions. Violence and aggression actually have similar definitions. You know me, I like to define terms. Let's talk about what we're talking about before we talk about it, right? What is violence? Violence is the use of physical force to inflict injury or damage. That's the definition of violence. It is the use of physical force, not emotional, not verbal, not intellectual, Physical force to inflict injury or damage, okay? Aggression, similar, hostile or violent behavior or attitudes toward one another. That's interesting because violence is a bit more specific, isn't it? You could be aggressive in your behavior, but also in your attitude. Violence is the use of physical force. So violence seems to be one step beyond aggression. All violent people are aggressive. Not all aggressive people become violent. And we're going to say more about that at the end. But both involve turning against another being, whether it's a human being or an animal, even an object. Right. You could pick up a crowbar and become violent on your car or someone else's car. And what's the point? The point is to inflict harm. It's to inflict damage. It's intentional. Now, there's two parts that I want to talk about when we're talking about becoming aggressive and possibly violent. The first is you put someone into a fear state. When somebody becomes aggressive or violent, they actually change the body chemistry of the person against whom they are becoming aggressive or violent. What is a fear state? It's the secretion of norepinephrine, adrenaline, and cortisol. When we come at someone, whether that's in aggression or or worse, in violence, we're changing the chemistry of their body. Their body will secrete adrenaline to help them meet the threat, and then they may get into a cortisol state, a high cortisol state, with the ongoing stress of the confrontation. So that's the fear state. We move people from a place of safety or perceived safety into a place of fear when we are violent or aggressive. We take away the right of someone else to feel safe, when we are aggressive or violent. And I hope you hear where I'm going. This is a serious thing. It is a serious thing to do to another human being to become aggressive, certainly to become violent. The other thing that we inflict is not just fear, but harm. We damage or we alter another body or even property when we become aggressive or violent. Okay? Now, let's talk about the definition of trauma. Oh, Vanessa, that's a touchy one. I don't know why it's touchy, okay? I think the reason why it's touchy is because everyone has claimed that many things are traumatizing and they're not. But for our purposes today, we're just going to kind of go with the classical definition of trauma. It is an event of significant emotional distress or existential threat so as to alter the physical, emotional, mental well-being of the person who undergoes it. Okay, it is larger than you can cope with. It is significant enough to alter functioning. That's what makes something traumatizing. It's not just hard, it's not just something we suffer through. It changes how we function as a result. What are the effects of trauma? It changes how we see ourselves. Generally, we go from either a positive or a neutral place to a more negative place. We might even go from negative to even more negative, but the general movement of the effect of trauma on how we see ourselves is negative. It changes how we see the world. We go from generally seeing it as possibly safe to unsafe, or maybe we saw it as unsafe and now we see it as more unsafe. And we develop coping mechanisms. And why do we do that? Well, they're meant to ease the internal pain of the event. Not only do we develop coping mechanisms at the time of the trauma, but we get triggered. That's what triggers are. They point us back to trauma, unresolved, unhealed trauma. And when we get triggered, we use those coping mechanisms to soothe ourselves and ease the internal pain of not just the trauma, but the triggers as well. Okay? now these are definitions. Okay? this is what we're working with today. Now I want to talk about the real problem. And the problem is normalization what do i mean by normalization normalization is the process by which we take what has been abnormal and we make it normal through discussion and behavior now remember just because something is normal does not mean it's healthy another word for normal is common it's out there we're not surprised by it anymore Take television rules, for example. There used to be extremely strict rules about what you could put on television. Bodies had to be covered. And over time, I mean, if I'm watching a TV show and I see someone's bare bottom, I'm not shocked anymore. You know, in 1985, we would have been horrified. You can't show that on television, right? But it's been normalized, okay? It's been made normal. Normal by discussion and by behaviors. So, some of what's been normalized is a really good thing. For example, trauma is finally being acknowledged. We're finally talking about what it means to be traumatized, how we were traumatized, how that changed us. And this is a really good thing because by acknowledging trauma, we are also therefore acknowledging the dignity and the personhood of the people who were traumatized. We're bringing into reality the hardship of trauma, and the dehumanization of so many types of trauma. So it's changed our conversations about mental health. It's changed our own mental health. The effects of trauma are so real. We carry them in the body. So by acknowledging or admitting that we were traumatized, we validate not only our own internal pain, but also some behaviors we may have found embarrassing or unexplainable. I had many behaviors connected to being Gosh, physically abused, molested. One of them was anytime I would go get a massage, which is not often, I still don't really like them, but sometimes I just need them for my neck and my shoulders. But I would go to a massage and I could not tell the massage therapist, didn't matter if they were male, female, old, young, didn't matter, I could not tell them whether the strength that they were using was too hard or too soft. Like if they were too hard and it really hurt, my mouth would not say, please lighten up. And if it was too soft and I needed more, I couldn't say, can you please go harder? Never. It was like I lost the ability to advocate for my own body because of the trauma. Like when I tell you I couldn't, I mean, I was shut down. Like my throat would stop working, and my lips wouldn't form the words. Like I could not get anything out. So I would just lay there in torment. Then I just stopped getting massages. I was like, this is torture. It's supposed to be a good thing. Now I can and I'm better at it, but it still takes effort. The effects of that trauma are real. And that's just one little example But the effects of trauma in our lives are real. The coping mechanisms that we develop are painful. You know, they're meant to protect us, but they have a toll. They create negative consequences in our lives. So the fact that we're talking about trauma is a good thing because we're normalizing the effects of trauma. We're normalizing the assault on personhood. We're normalizing PTSD. We're normalizing talking about these things and we needed to do that. But what's not been so good is that the word trauma is being overused and abused. Everything now is a trauma. Every hardship, I was traumatized by that. Here's the problem with this. If we believe that little things traumatize us, a social rejection or, you know, a bad grade on a test, could these things be traumatizing Yes, I'm sure they could on some level if they're bringing up deeper issues. But a lot of what I'm describing right now is just normal life. It's like the ups and the downs of a day. It's normal life. It doesn't have to fall under the category of trauma. But if we tell ourselves that we're traumatized by this, we actually can traumatize ourselves by that. We become emotionally fragile. We take on a victimized mindset. And that does not run together with mental health. A victimized mindset means you are disempowered. Mental health means you are self-empowered. So the more we believe we were traumatized, the more we will believe we were victims, which means we're going to expect others to cater to our self-defined victim status. We may fall into a place of learned helplessness, where we just see ourselves as small and inconsequential and incapable because everything traumatizes us. So it's important that we don't overuse this word. Where there is real trauma, we say this was trauma. This was big. It changed me. And where there's hardship, we can still get compassion and empathy for that. It just may not be traumatizing. It may be something that we can process and move on. The goal of the field of mental health is health. It's being healthy. This means we are strong, resilient, and robust mentally. That's the goal. That should be the goal of therapy is moving from weakness into strength, from illness into health. The word therapy means healing. It doesn't mean talking (laughs) endlessly. It means healing. And for me, some therapeutic experiences took me seven years to heal. Some of them took me seven months. Maybe some of them took me seven sessions. I guess I could take a detailed look at it. But the reality is it takes a while to undo this stuff. But the goal is health. Just like the goal of physical health is health. But we're living in an era where people don't really have that goal anymore. They just want to talk. They want to talk about their problems. They don't want to pursue solutions, healing, different mindsets, freedom from this. You know, there's an interesting syndrome. And it's been in the DSM, I think, for probably, gosh, going on 30 years now. Uh, No, longer. It's been in the DSM for probably 50 years. And it's called Munchausen syndrome. And Munchausen syndrome is rare and fascinating. And what it is, is it's a mental phenomenon in which people fabricate having physical illnesses in order to meet deeper psychological needs. So they may have a need for attention or care or compassion or sympathy. They want people to sort of cater to them and take care of them. So they basically pretend to have all these illnesses and these people go to ERs repeatedly And, you know, my head hurts. It's pounding. I can't feel my heart. It's stopping. I can't breathe. They go on and on and on. They get batteries of tests and blood work and urine analysis and CAT scans. And I mean, really, they rack up bills all to meet those emotional needs. And we're sort of living in an era of mental Munchausen syndrome. Everybody has to have a diagnosis. Everybody wants their label. I'm saying it's not healthy. We're manipulating for attention and sympathy when we're doing this. And you know what manipulation is? Manipulation is what we do when we can't ask for what we need. That's all it is. It doesn't mean you're evil and it doesn't mean you're a terrible person. It just means you don't know how to ask for what you need, which is, hey, I need attention. I need care. I need sympathy. Or maybe we were raised in terrible environments and we never got those needs met. So the only way we think we can get those needs met is basically by lying to people and convincing them that there's something physically wrong with us. Okay, the needs underneath Munchausen syndrome are very normal, but the way that we go about doing it is very manipulative, which is what makes it ill. It's what makes it a sickness. Right. But we're living in mental Munchausens. Now, there's a secondary type of Munchausens, and that's Munchausens by proxy. And it's the same disorder, same needs being met. But instead of the person being the patient, it's usually their child. And I have worked. It is rare, but I have worked with kids whose parents had Munchausen's by proxy. And I will tell you, it was one of the most difficult processes, but one of the highlights of my life to look at a kid and be able to say, there's nothing wrong with you. None of this is true. I have had children show me stacks of medical records, like evaluations by psychologists, therapists, I mean, you name it. And I can just go through this stack and go, I don't see it. I don't see it. I don't see it. I know you. I've been treating you for a while. I don't see this. And the look on their faces. You mean I'm not as sick as someone told me I was? No, you're not. You're just growing up and you got your stuff. But no, it's an amazing experience. Again, it's rare. I haven't run across it that many times in, what, 13, 14, whatever it is, years of clinical practice at this point. But it's very sick because the parent is now meeting their own needs by making this person in their life the patient. And they are viewed as being like martyrs and they're saints because they have suffered through so much and they put up with so much. And it's sick. But again, we're living now in mental Munchausen's by proxy. And again, those needs are getting filled by the mental hardship of another with whom we're in relationship. Oh, they have this diagnosis. They have that diagnosis. I mean, gosh, I could say so much about this. I can't tell you how many people nowadays are believing. They actually believe they have dissociative identity disorder. And they put these TikToks up and these accounts and they call them systems. Now, I've not evaluated these people. I don't know what their deal is. I don't know what their childhood is. But my question is very general. And it is, if you know about all of these alters and you can see them all in video format in front of you, how is this dissociative? How is this dissociative? Dissociative means you're not aware of it. Lots of problems with that. But this is where we're living. It's like mental Munchausen's and mental Munchausen's by proxy. Everybody wants to be a victim of trauma and have a mental illness. I've never seen anything like it, and it's certainly not how I grew up. But this is sort of the era we're in, and it's happening at an alarming rate. Why am I talking about this? Because we're normalizing something we don't need to be normalizing. We're normalizing hardship in a way that is actually making us weaker, and it's not great. Now, another normalization that we've done that kind of falls in the category of not so good is the normalization of aggression. Now, what do I mean? I remember, (laughs) I'm not that old, but I do remember when being aggressive was seen as a personality flaw. It was viewed as immature, a lack of self-control, someone who is totally emotionally governed, which was not seen as a virtue at all. Nowadays, it's actually viewed as necessary in order to be seen and heard. And I'm going to share something in a moment that proves this. It is considered necessary to be seen and heard. It is now normal to get up in someone's face and be obnoxiously loud, use profanities, completely lose your humanity. I mean, you want to talk about dissociative. It's like a lapse of humanity. For a moment, we forget that the person we are confronting like this is a human being with a nervous system and a life and maybe reasons for why they think and feel and do as they do. No, in the moment, the aggression is considered a virtue. It's like a marker of courage. And it's included in the arsenal of socially acceptable tactics to bring about change or reform. You know, a while ago, I got into a conflict with two colleagues. I got into a conflict with both of them because they were talking about the benefits and the necessity of rioting. And I was like, wait a minute, guys, we're therapists. I mean, I understand the need for social reform and change. I'm all for it. Let's bring justice where there is injustice. I am all for it. But rioting, taking out anger on innocent people and innocent businesses? Do you know what they said? Oh, it's okay, they have insurance. What? What? I said, guys, we're we're the therapists. Aren't we supposed to be the members of society who are helping people work with their emotions in a more mature, sustainable way? And I use the word sustainable here intentionally. If everyone does this, where will society be? If everyone feels entitled to riot and loot stores when they don't like what's happening on the social or political scene, what do our streets look like? What does our society look like what even matters to anyone anymore? Is there no personhood? I'll never forget it. Oh, they have insurance. I'm Like, this, this is your rationale? What about what we're doing to the safety of the individuals who have no part of this? They're just getting trashed. It's a totally self-centered disposition. It's devoid of empathy. And I'm here to tell you that any stance disposition, series of actions that we take that's devoid of empathy, there are only two personality structures that put us in a position where we are devoid of empathy and they are narcissism and sociopathy. So if we want to be narcissistic or sociopathic, I guess lose your empathy. There's no concern for fairness or rightness. We're in a morally bankrupt position if this is our position and there's no awareness and this is the mental health issue whatsoever of the ripple effect on society at large. No, the thinking is my actions exist in the vacuum of their intent. In other words, these actions are acceptable in the context in which I execute them. And I'm here to say, no, they are not. No, they are not. We need to stop normalizing aggression. Why? Because aggression is what is at the root of violence. Once you cross over and you make aggression normal, you are one step away from violence. You are one step away from being capable of it, and you are one step away from supporting it. And this is so normalized. This is so pervasive that people in my field who practice in the city of Nashville believe that this is good. This is a good thing. We should normalize aggression and violence in certain situations. I mean, I just—I was aghast. I remember feeling so disheartened and so worried and concerned. Like, these are the therapists? What hope do we have? We're the body of professionals who are supposed to be helping people learn how to do emotions differently than that. And going one step further, we've now normalized trauma as an excuse for inhuman or cruel behavior. So on Monday... In the wake of this shooting, the city is reeling, people are crying. I mean, it was just such a hard day. If you've been in a city where there's a school shooting, you get it. It's hard. The Trans Resistance Network, they released a statement, and it's because Audrey Hale identified as trans. Okay, so they released a statement in the wake of the attacks. And the first thing they said was, today's incident in Nashville, this is the quote, Today's incident in Nashville is not one tragedy, but two. The first tragedy is the loss of three children and adults. And they went on and expressed their sympathies and it was very kind. And then they said this, quote, the second and more complex tragedy is Aiden or Audrey Hale who felt he had no other effective way to be seen than to lash out by taking the life of others and by consequence himself, close quote. Friends, if this is your only option to be seen, we're doomed. This is the statement By this organization, Audrey Hale, Aiden Hale, whatever name this individual went by, had no other effective way to be seen than to lash out and commit murder. So while you're listening to this podcast and you're thinking, I don't know if people are normalizing violence, Vanessa, there it is. You have no other way to be seen than to brandish an AR-15 and blow people away. If that is not the normalization of violence and aggression, I don't know what is. And underneath that is the root. There's so much trauma, there's so much unfairness, there's so much hardship, this is the only recourse. Friends, this is a problem. Trauma is not an excuse for violence. If you get nothing else out of this, if you wanna share this podcast for one sentence Here it is. Trauma is not an excuse for aggression, and it is not an excuse for violence. It is a set of difficult circumstances that most of us, by every available statistic, need to work through. Some of our traumas are worse than others. Some of us have been far more traumatized than others. Even still, it is not an excuse for aggression. It is not an excuse for violence. If you're still listening to this and you're thinking, no, I think we should normalize aggression in certain circumstances, do me a favor, turn this off. I am not the podcaster for you. Go find somebody else to listen to who agrees with that, because that is not me. And if you don't think people should be held accountable for their actions and we can blame things on trauma, just stop listening. I'm not your girl. This is not your podcast. If you want reactive, childish, harmful, scarring behavior to be normalized in our society, this podcast is not for you. We are about love. We are about healthy, unconditional love for the self and in turn, love for others. That doesn't mean you like everybody. It means you treat everyone like a human being. What kind of world do you want to live in? What are we normalizing? When you love yourself, you don't normalize this. You don't defend it. You don't accept aggression and violence as normal parts of our society. People who love stand against this. Now, let's make some connections, okay? Because you may be listening, fairly thinking to yourself, wait a minute, though. Isn't trauma at the root of a lot of, you know, these these violent people? Isn't there a trauma in their story? Probably. But let's talk about what's connected to what, okay? Is trauma connected to anger? Could be. Wait a minute, Vanessa. I think all trauma makes you angry. Not necessarily, Anger is a normal human reaction to feeling violated, like if your boundaries get crossed or if you've been treated or someone you love, someone you care about has been treated in an unfair or unjust way, anger is a normal human reaction. That's what it's for. It's a signal that an injustice has occurred or that a boundary line has been crossed. That's the function of anger. So trauma very well could leave us feeling angry if the trauma was interpersonal. In other words, if it was person to person, if someone treated us or traumatized us through mistreatment, anger will be very normal for us. We're going to feel angry. But some traumas do not include anger as part of the emotional processing. For example, no-fault car accidents. I've treated people who have been in car accidents, very scary, life-threatening car accidents, and there is no real anger that comes out of it, certainly not directed at anyone. It's traumatizing because it was an existential threat but it wasn't interpersonal. So is anger an assumption we should make? I think you could probably assume it a lot of times, but not all of them. Many emotions accompany trauma. Anger is but one. Now what's the connection between anger and aggression? This is very important. Anger is an emotion. Aggression is an action against another to do them harm. Do you hear the difference? anger is an emotion aggression is an action anger is automatic aggression is a choice and ultimately the reason why i know it's a choice and you are talking to a reformed and reforming aggressive person okay and i'm going to say a little bit more about that later the reason why we know it's a choice is because we are capable of stopping it we are capable of changing it's an automatic choice We get aggressive really fast. It's a fight or flight response, right? We can learn how to undo that. And we can develop a choice in the matter. David Chester, he's a researcher at Virginia Commonwealth University, and he only studies violence. That's all he studies. So he's sort of an expert on violence. Here's a quote, because we think all aggression is connected to anger. Here's a quote from a professional researcher who studies violence. Quote, Our lab has really shown that it's true negative emotions are there, and he means anger, okay, or fear. But positive emotions actually also play a pretty big role in aggressive behavior as well. So aggression can feel good. And that pleasure, what we call hedonic reward, is a really potent motivating force. In other words, he said, aggressive behavior can be reinforced by positive feelings of power and dominance. So aggression isn't just about I'm angry and I want to hit someone, Chester said. Quote, it's also about how it feels good sometimes to get revenge on someone who has wronged you or who you perceive as having wronged you. Friends, Trauma is not anger, and anger is not aggression. These can be connected, but not necessarily. We can be traumatized. I'm sorry if we were, but if we were, we might feel anger. And if we endured trauma, and if we feel anger, we actually don't have to become aggressive. Is it a normal reaction to being angry? Sure. Is it something we can change? Yes. Does it take a lot of hard work? Yes, it does. I'm still doing it. Now, aggression and violence are connected because once we normalize aggression, once we say it's okay to turn ourselves against others, once we say that our emotions, our positions, our thoughts warrant our aggressive, harmful, reactive adult temper tantrums, we are now capable of violence. Scary, isn't it? It's true. Folks, people don't purchase weapons and point them at small children because they're traumatized. They don't murder people because they're angry. They choose heinous acts of murderous intent because they have come into the belief that aggression and violence are acceptable elements of human behavior. They have justified harming another to meet their own needs or the needs of their agenda, period, full stop. Anger is not aggression. Anger does not have to end in aggression. Trauma doesn't have to end in anger or aggression. These things may be connected in somebody's timeline, but there is no reason to assume that because somebody becomes violent, well, the answer for it is their childhood drama. No, the answer for it is they normalized aggression. And once you normalize aggression, you will normalize violence. It is just a matter of time. Ask yourself what kind of society you wanna live in. Now, is aggression or violence ever necessary? Yes. For the immediate and real defense of another human life. For example, the cops who entered Covenant School and took out the killer. They didn't hesitate. They didn't try and reason with her. There were no social workers on the scene. They pointed a gun at a person carrying a gun who had already killed six people. And they took her out. And that is tragic. I hate it for this young woman. She was 28 years old. And the people speaking for her believe that this was the only way she could have been seen was to lash out and kill people. And if I could get that beautiful face in my office for 10 minutes, I would have looked at her and said, Audrey, I'm listening. But you know what? That's a pipe dream. Because it probably would have come too late. Once you normalize this, once you accept that aggression and violence are part of what's necessary to live in society, we're doomed. There probably is no turning back. Maybe there could have been. But see, that's the problem with normalizing it. How to handle anger like an adult. Feel it, name it, process it. Easier said than done. Feel it, feel the change in your body. Your body is going to tighten up. It's going to clench up. Take a deep breath. If you need an anger management class, please take one. Please do yourself that favor. Please take an anger management class. There are so many effective strategies for working with anger. Do you know how long on average it takes your body to diffuse an anger state? 20 minutes. So if you get angry and you can wait 20 minutes, you can get through it. You can take a walk. That's bilateral stimulation. You can breathe. Diaphragmatic breathing calms the autonomic nervous system. You can change your sensory reality. Play a song that suits you, moves you out of anger. Take a cold shower. There are so many ways to control and mitigate anger responses. So first, we have to feel it. We have to know what's going on before we get reactive. Then we name it. I'm feeling anger. I'm aware of anger. There it is. I feel it. That's what it feels like. We process it. Maybe we talk about it. Maybe we walk it off. You know, the response to anger is very often to set a boundary. Well, that's a whole other thing. We have to learn how to set boundaries, how to say yes, how to say no, how to have a hard conversation with someone. Hey, what you did really bothered me. I don't know if we can be in relationship anymore. Sometimes we have to grieve when we're working on anger. Okay, it's complex. It's a lot of work, but it's the work of being human as opposed to just flipping over and normalizing aggression and violence. Now, how to stop from becoming aggressive. I didn't tell you how to stop from feeling angry because I don't want you to stop feeling angry. Anger is your signal that something has gone wrong in relationship. An injustice has occurred. A boundary has been crossed. You need the signal But how to stop from becoming aggressive? Boy, do I know about this. Do your own work. You know, years ago, I was in a relationship with someone who honestly could be a bit aggressive himself. But he had, you know, reaction to my own aggression. And he was right to have a reaction to my own aggression. And you know what I said to him once? Talk about normalizing. He called me out on raising my voice or something, and he was right to do so. And I said, oh, please, I'm Colombian and Italian. We're hot blooded. Get over it. Friends, I was a therapist at the time. Here I am normalizing aggression. I'm not trying to be anything I'm not. I normalized this. Why? Because I was raised in a home where it was normalized. People screamed and nobody apologized. People were aggressive and passive aggressive. Don't you worry. I'm coming for you, passive aggressive ones out there. Aggression is not just loud. But the first thing we need to do to stop it in our lives is admit it. Begin to notice your own aggressive tendencies. Raising your voice, threatening, even using physical violence. If you're there, back it up and get some help. Throwing, hitting, slamming, punching, punching a wall, throwing objects. Friends, talk about it. I know it's hard to do. That summer, gosh, it was the summer of seventeen was the first summer that I tackled my aggression from the inside out. And so much of it changed. You know what changed more than anything else? My awareness of it. And I became very aware of how I was the recipient of so much aggression. And I will say the physical abuse I suffered was violence. And I remember how it felt in my body. And I thought, I don't want to do that to someone else. Now, can I still raise my voice? Yes. But you know what? I've stopped normalizing it passive-aggressive behavior, shutting down, the silent treatment, subtle digs. Friends, we got to come clean. We got to work on this. We can't normalize aggression because we're in an emotional state. We can't normalize this. Even if you struggle with it for the rest of your life, as long as you know, I'm struggling with it, I'm fighting with it, you're good. But when you normalize it, do not be surprised if you will begin, maybe even to think about, but certainly to normalize violence. It is on the same path. We change society by changing us. And when we see our own behavior as our own job, we've owned our trauma. We've owned our aggression. We're working on it. We're going to begin to see others in a very healthy light and that they are responsible for their behavior. And we're going to start to see aggression as a problem, not a normalized behavioral option in society. Look, the flow here, okay? Well, what's the root? Okay, let's talk about the flow. The flow here is not trauma to anger to aggression to violence. That's not the flow. The flow is normalizing aggression to violence. You know, we don't have time to get into every serial killer and, you know, school shooter, nor do I want to. It's pretty macabre. And I'm not an expert in this, but we all have heard stories of like this. Where did this person get this idea from? They came out of nowhere. They had such a loving family. Then we find out they'd been playing video games for years. Friends, once you once your brain sees aggression and violence as an option, it doesn't really matter if you've been traumatized or not. You will have normalized it. That's the point. I'm going to read a quote and then we're going to wrap up. Hopefully, you know this quote. Hopefully, it's really familiar to you. Returning hate for hate multiplies hate, adding deeper darkness to a night already devoid of stars. Darkness cannot drive out darkness. Only light can do that. Hate cannot drive out hate. Only love can do that. Folks, if we're Deluding ourselves into thinking that we can pick up aggression and violence and win any kind of a war, specifically with our countrymen. We're going to tear our society apart. I can't say it better than that. If you don't know who that is, that's Martin Luther King. And I'm going to ask you today to choose a side. Pick a side. You are either on the side of light and love or you are on the side of aggression and violence because I don't think there's a middle road. We are splitting ourselves apart in this society because we have normalized aggressing against one another and the end result of that is violence. But there is hope. We can do the deeper work. We need to address the deeper issues. We can heal We can come to know ourselves and choose healthier behaviors. If I can do it, I am not any stronger than anybody else. If I can do it, you can do it. We are the hope the world needs right now. So remember, your sole work is to discover who you truly are and learn how to love that human being. And that means sifting out the violence and aggression you feel inside first and join the army of people who call this wrong and stand on the side of love. Till next time. This podcast is recorded in Nashville, Tennessee and edited by Jared Bentley. I'm Vanessa Londino, and you just listened to the Vanessa Londino podcast.